Hi guys, welcome back to season four of Elsa and Ria's Emergency Room podcast. This season, we're going to be reading When Breath Becomes Air by Dr. Paul Kralanuthi, um, who's a neuro- who was a neurosurgeon and also was a neuroscientist. Um, Dr. Paul Kralanuthi was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And uh, after his diagnosis, he started to see and describe death from a patient's standpoint after having to view it from a doctor's standpoint his entire life. My name's Elsa Paul, and here I have my co-host. Hi guys, my name is Rhea. Um, So yeah, I also kind of set up the book really nicely, and in the prologue is when Dr. Kalanithi describes, you know, all of that basically in a nutshell. and I just, to start it off, um, just his first paragraph was crazy to me because he says that, um, you know, I'm flipping through the CT scan images, the diagnosis obvious, he sees the tumors, he sees the spine deformed, um, you know, very obvious that it was cancer. And um, he, he thinks that, you know, some procedure to help change that or reverse that is kind of unlikely. Um, but then, you know, the last sentence of that paragraph was, but this scan was different. It was my own. And so, you know, that, that really just shows that like, wow, like, like, yeah, I mean, you can kind of feel in the way that he's writing, um, that this was just like, I mean, who wouldn't be moved by such an experience and, you know, it's just crazy to start this way. Yeah, I found it really moving that like his wife was with him as he was reading the chart and um in the beginning they were trying to figure out is it cancer could it be something else and even as a doctor he just like didn't want to be certain that it would be cancer um so he was like let me get an mri to be sure and uh we saw him get frustrated as he tried to like take control of his own cancer diagnosis but he had to fall back into the pa- the he had to fall back into the place of a patient instead um, which I thought was really interesting yeah and I think from our perspective as future healthcare professionals it was just interesting to think about like okay well so he's basically like us in in the sense of that that role and so it's like, what would we have done in his position? Um, like, would we have, like, he uses this line where, um, you know, they, they had both, sus- him and his wife had suspected that something was off, but they refused to believe or even discuss that a cancer was growing inside him. Um, and I think that's just like, it. like, I personally took away from that, that no matter how educated you are, human nature is always there and you're always going to feel scared. Well, you know, if you're afraid of death, um, which, you know, who really isn't, at least to a certain extent, right? Um, And, and that, like, we're all just like fallible to that human nature of not wanting to know the truth, because the truth could hurt you more than ignorance. Um, And so, you know, he he didn't want to get it checked out for the longest. And like Elsa said, they thought it was something else. And so they were kind of just like trying to avoid the fact that it was something so scary that could change their lives forever because no one wants to deal with that change. 
Um, so you try to hold off on it as long as you can. And, you know, no matter who you are, you could be a doctor and be like the smartest um, person to know about things like this and still just not want to know the truth. Um, one part of the prologue that like really got to me was when he was, I believe at the airport and he was having uncontrollable, like muscle spasms and his back was hurting and he wanted to lay down on the floor or the bench or wherever the security guard was like, you can't lay down here. And, um, Dr. Kalanithi could barely talk and he was saying, I'm sorry, uh, back spasms um, and then he didn't say this out loud but he wanted to say I'm sorry but I'm dying from cancer and um, as he was saying the words lingered on my tongue but what if I wasn't so just like Rhea just said he like didn't want to admit the fact that it could be cancer and he, he was like I don't want to jinx it I don't want to like say the word cancer out loud so seeing um, cancer in so many patients, I'm sure he has like a different idea of like how like the toll it takes on one's body and being so like he um, he's just about to be an attending, right? Yeah, he had his last year of residency left, or I think he was in his last year of residency or um, a year before that. Yeah, so he's like worked so hard to get to where he is, and now. He's about to receive like a life-changing diagnosis. And he's trying to put it off as far as like much as he can. But obviously you can't avoid something like cancer. It's just something that like makes you pick up and move your entire life. Yeah, and I mean, just the fact that he, he kept on chalking it up to, you know, maybe it's just because I'm working so hard, that's why my back hurts, that's what I, why everything's aching. And also you can't really blame him for not not uh jumping on like checking things out quickly because he was also like only 30 something like 38 so you know what's what are the odds that someone 38 actually i think he gave the odds that some some 38 year old has cancer and it was like like uh, i I don't want to get it wrong but i think it was like 0.5 percent or something like that it was something like so small if if we find it later on in the season i'll make sure to point it out um but you know, what are the odds? So it's like, you can't even blame him for not wanting to make a big deal out of something when he just like, when it was just so, so crazy and like, um, unfathomable. I agree. And like the last sentence of the prologue was, um, was him laying down, um, waiting for the doctor to come and diagnose him, I believe. And, um, he says, and with that, the future I had imagined the one, just about to be realized the accumulation of decades of striving evaporated and it's just like in a blink of an eye like everything he's worked so hard for everything he sacrificed is like just stripped from him because of something he can't control and I think that's like a big point that we see throughout the book um how he feels about how he allocated his time no yeah so I mean, that, that, like, I feel like there's no way to describe that feeling. Like, you kind of, it's one of those things you just read it and you can put yourself in his shoes as best as you can. And just, like, the devastation of, like, first of all, like, like, this is a goal we work for for so long. And 
we're like, I mean, we're grinding for a 24 seven for that eventual conclusion of, Hey, I, I became a doctor. I became a PA, became a PT, whatever your goal is. And just to get so close and then have it not even be realized fully. Um, it's just so, so sad. And I honestly, I mean, I know it's, I, I can say it a million times, but like, I don't know. It just made me feel so terrible that like, like he was robbed of such a great accomplishment almost. Yeah. And like, it's something that happens to patients daily. And like, as a doctor, um, you can't really put yourself in their shoes, but now he's like getting firsthand experience what his patients go through. Yeah. And so he kind of talks about that briefly in um, the intro that we're reading and he talks about it later on too but for now he kind of just says that um he had talked to patients and had them describe their pain to him but he never knew what it felt like and I just think that's like what I always think is that like you can try to be the most empathetic person in whatever field um healthcare or whatever but unless you've actually experienced it whatever the patient is talking about, the pain or whatever they're going through, um, you can't possibly know exactly what the patient is going through. Just like Dr. Uh, Kalanithi was saying about how, you know, this now that he was experiencing this pain, he finally really understood his patients. Um, and I thought that was interesting. I think... To fully, like, understand someone, you need to, like, actually experience what they've experienced. And even that's hard because each person's experience of something is so unique. Dr. Kalanithi, he was, like, a, he was a great doctor and neurosurgeon. And I'm sure he was, like, wonderful to his patients. But he didn't fully understand how bad um, treatment for these variety of cancers was until he had to treatment himself and saw the side effects on his own body and I'm sure that gave him a new perspective on treating patients or like he definitely thought about his patients more in that moment I don't know I would like to believe that I would fully be able to understand my patients right but I like I said I don't think that's exactly possible to understand them fully unless I've been exactly in their shoes but that's not to say that we can't get close, right? We can really try to be empathetic and try to understand things from his perspective, the patient's perspective. And I think that's what Dr. Kalanithi was doing before his diagnosis from what he made it seem like, like, you know, it made it seem like he was a really great doctor. Um, and we'll get into this in the next part, but like, you know, he really talked about, um, or he really cared about like, you know, how the patient was doing instead of just, hey, I'm here to treat you. So he tried his best to really examine things from the patient's perspective, which is great. Um, but, you know, it's like, that only, it only helps you to a certain extent, I think. Okay, so to start off part one, which kind of describes Dr. Kalanithi's life pre-diagnosis um, and just his, his life as a child, you know, growing up, his education as a child, family life, um, as well as time during undergrad, medical school, residency. 
right up until the point of diagnosis, what this, this part is going to discuss. So, you know, he starts off with, I, with, with a line that I liked, um, which says, you know, I knew with certainty that I would never be a doctor. I just think, think that was funny because personally, I also never thought that I was wanted to be a doctor. Um, in, in Dr. Kalanithi's perspective, he just had so many doctors in his life, like his dad, his uncle, his older brother. So then he paints a, a kind of negative picture of medicine because he says, I only knew medicine by its absence like his absence of his father because his dad was never around, always working. Um, and, you know, I thought that was really interesting um, just because, you know, he saw the negative side of it and he just completely could not see that for himself. Um, and like, you know, it, it seems like he doesn't get much into it, but it seems like he had a bit of a strained relationship with his father saying that his dad tried to, make up for lost time by just overdoing it when he was there. And he said, if that was the price of medicine, it was simply too high. Um, so I thought that was interesting because he grew up around it. And then he, he just felt that because of all of this, he could not see it for himself. So I relate to Dr. Kalanithi on this because growing up, my parents have always been working um, weird hours and, Lately, it's like I never even see them. Um, and so I know their jobs through their absence as well to an extent. Even though they aren't doctors, you know, it's still the commute and them not being home um, really has an impact on the family. And so that, in that like, um, had an effect on what I wanted to do with my life because... I never even thought about doctor as a possibility. I, from the beginning, I always told myself I wanted to be home. If I ever had a family, I wanted to be home for them, which is why, you know, I currently am on the road to uh, becoming a PA, hopefully, um, because I've heard about the good work-life balance. Anyway, um, I just wanted to say, like, it's his... Um, wanting of his father in his life more is definitely not a small thing. It definitely has a big impact on you as a person. But I find it really interesting that even with that, he um, decided to pursue being a doctor, not just any doctor, a neurosurgeon, because that has to be the most time-consuming one that I can think of. I just think that from my perspective, I... Um... I didn't know much about the doctor life either. To me, it just seemed like I didn't want to be a doctor more so because of the stereotype that um, Indians specifically, they all just become doctors. And like growing up, I like knew that stereotype and I was very like anti like conforming to any sort of stereotype. And of course, things just happen in your life and which I'm assuming is the same thing with him where for one reason or another, something just draws you toward the field Um for like personal reasons. And um, I guess that that's, that's what happened with him. Right. Because as we're going to see soon, soon um, he had his own like, like reason for getting into it beside that, that was greater than the whole idea of not being around.
So his reasoning for getting into get, getting interested in the field of biology um, and, you know, eventually medicine was that he read this book called Satan, His Psychotherapy and Cure by the Unfortunate Dr. Kastler, JSPS, um, by Jeremy Levin. So, you know, he read this book and he said that um, it wasn't just talking about the brain in the sense that it was just like this biological thing but also like he kind of had this epiphany it seems like that um our brains really control our whole being and while it is subject to the laws of physics it also is the reason we can have human meaning um it enables us to have that and so all of a sudden he became super interested in the brain um, because he was always, it seems like he was always interested in this idea of the human meaning and the human experience. Um, and so when he made that connection that the brain is kind of responsible for all of this, he really wanted to study the brain. So he said that in addition to his literature classes that he had signed up to take at Stanford um, as an undergrad, he also marked down some bio, biology and neuroscience classes. So a few years later, he had almost completed um, his English and biology degrees, and he was still on the search for like the meaning of life, essentially. And he states in the book that literature gave him like best account of life to the mind, which is quoting him, while neuroscience was like giving the giving him the rules of the brain. And um, he wanted to further explore the meaning of life basically and so when he had the opportunity to choose between um doing research in the field of biology and going on a wilderness camp he chose the latter and he decided to kind of figure out the meaning of life through this camp and his advisor was initially like so angry with him or upset with him asking like what do you want to I honestly really appreciated it because he was doing what his his heart desired. Um, and it just shows that like the whole time what this was for him, like everything he did was very um, motivated by this desire to learn as much as he could about life and death and the meaning of life. And that's just how he based off all his decisions. It had nothing to do with this, like, like goal he set for himself. Like, because he didn't know he wanted to be a doctor. So he was just trying to get as much experience as he could because the goal was not a doctor, but to learn about the meaning of life. And eventually those two intersected. But it's interesting to see at this point that they weren't intersected. And you can see how that was affecting his decisions. Yeah, and he even says, uh, we're never so wise as when we live in this moment. And I thought that was like, very interesting because the rest of his life, he just couldn't live in the moment. He had, Well, maybe he was like enjoying what he was doing, but he was constantly like, if I work just a little bit harder, I'll be done. And then I can make time for my family or this or that. So at least at this camp, he had to take in nature and all the details of life and just, you know, have a deeper understanding of the world um and he says that for the next two years his life felt rich and full 
Um, and he said he doesn't miss the monkeys or, you know, whatever else. He was just trying to, he kept trying to figure out what makes life meaningful. So speaking about this idea, how he's motivated by his um, desire to just like learn about the meaning of life. He talks about a significant experience of his, which was going to, I believe, some kind of nursing facility um, where many of the residents had nearly drowned as young kids. So they had a bunch of like long term neurological or brain damage. And, um, you know, he was talking or I guess I guess someone at the facility was saying that um, like bunch of the families just end up moving away from the people they leave in these facilities and you know naturally it made Dr. Kalanithi upset because he was like how can you just how can parents abandon their children um like of course it's hard to take care of them but they're your children and you know you have a responsibility to kind of take care of them through thick and thin um and then he was talking a little bit about this after the trip with his professor and his professor had said something along the lines of you know, it might have been better if they were to just die, the residents in the nursing facility. And Dr. Kalanithi was so appalled by this because he was like, what do you mean? And basically just thinking that everyone, you know, should get a fair chance at a good quality of life. Um, and so, you know, he was just like, he couldn't understand that someone could have this perspective of just wanting someone to die. And um, I, I, at this point, it doesn't really have meaning but we're gonna see later on how he kind of changes his mindset as a doctor on this idea where he becomes a little bit more understanding of quality of life rather than just life yeah i think like initially as a young doctor like healthcare professional you are so hell-bent on saving everyone like um obviously i've only had minimal experience um but Anytime I have a patient, I'm immediately like, oh, they're, you know, we're going to do the best we can. In any medical show, it initially shows the residents, like, so eager to save everyone. And the first death is always the hardest one because it's like you just failed, you know. But it's not like you can save everyone in medicine. Um, Some people, it's better to let them go because, like Korea just said, what is the quality of life if someone's just going to struggle through each day, if someone's not even conscious and, you know, they're being too fed? Not that their life is any less meaningful, but um, the quality of it goes down drastically and, you know, they're going through so much unnecessary pain. Um, So I think that's just a hard decision that, doctors and people in healthcare make um and uh Dr. Kalanithi we'll touch on this later but he mentions later that you know just before he couldn't make up his mind before about um a French dip or a Reuben and now he's making judgment calls on people's life like are they going to live are they going to die so it's like the amount of responsibility placed on a doctor uh, is insane. And um, yeah. No, yeah. And I mean, I personally, I guess if we're going to talk about like our opinions on this, I think that it really depends on, I'm big on like it, it depending on each person's wishes. So like if 
I mean, we're crossing the border of like euthanasia and stuff like that. But like, you know, it, it, I think that it should be up to the person if they're conscious, conscious, then they can decide for themselves, you know, what they want. Um, or if a family member maybe knew them well. But of course, then with every ethics kind of scenario, there's there's arguments to be made on each side and it just gets really hairy. Um when you get into the weird like like the weird um niche kind of situations um but i do agree like personally i guess for myself i would not want to um you know kind of be robbed of my uh, autonomy and then just have to live a life where i'm not really living if that makes sense you know because there's no quality to it um, so I do understand the perspective of just wanting them, like, it'd be better. I think that's the key. The, the way the professor phrased it is that not, I want them to die, but like, you know, it, sometimes maybe it would be better if they died, um, for their sakes. Like you could just see where, where he's coming from. So I don't think it was that ridiculous of a statement to have made. I think it's definitely up to the patient to decide what happens to their body. Making decisions on someone else's behalf, I think that can you know, get hairy because you never truly know what someone else wants or how it affects their life. So as Dr. Kalanithi finished his PhD, he uh, wrote it about the history of psychiatry, neuroscience, as well as literary criticism, um, calling it Whitman and the medicalization of personality. And he said that although it was... um, you know, good and well-received, uh, it didn't really fit into the English department, and he felt like he didn't belong in the English department. And so, with that in mind, he decided to pursue medicine. And so, he talked to a pre-med advisor, he started taking uh, the pre-med courses, and he said that moral speculation was, the word he used was puny compared to moral action. So, he wanted to actually have an impact and do something other than just speculate through literature, which I think maybe is one of the big reasons he went for um, doing medicine. Anyway, he then decided to go to Yale School of Medicine. And I think this makes sense um, to switch to medicine because, you know, he was always uh, intrigued by this idea of the meaning of life. And, you know, as he said it, you know, what better way to kind of explore that idea further than being with those who are on this brink of life and death. So then Dr. Colin Nithi gets into um, like stories now of his time in medical school. And the first one he starts off with was his first time cutting up a cadaver. And, um, you know, he talked, he said this thing where he said, even though you would assume or think it to be a weird experience, he said everything felt normal. And I kind of relate to this in the sense that I also think that these some of these experiences when you're observing life and death would would be weird. Um, but like, I guess specifically for me, I volunteer at a hospice home and as an 11th hour volunteer, I um, spend time with those who are in the active process of dying like towards the very last hours of life and kind of just sit with them especially if family's not around to let them know that someone's there and hopefully ease them as they pass 
And um, I remember the first person that I did, you know, sit with as she passed away. Um, I was walking into that experience also assuming that like, oh, this is going to be very somber and um, like, like really meaningful. And, you know, I didn't know what my own emotions would be. I didn't know what to expect of myself in that moment. Um, but everyone around me made it feel like it was pretty routine. And I guess it's because, you know, they've as nurses, they've seen a bunch of these patients pass away throughout the years. But it's like everyone kind of went about business as usual, like, you know, cleaning everything properly that they needed to, um, like ha- carrying on with regular conversations. And I, at first I felt that was weird. Yeah. And I just thought it was weird how like after she passed too, it still wasn't anything, anything, anything had changed. It was almost like one moment she was here and one moment she wasn't. And I thought, and like, maybe it's because I didn't know her, which is why it was easier to feel this way. Um, But at the end of the day, it was like some, some soul had just passed and was no longer with us. Someone who had carried so much history and so much knowledge with her was no longer able to express that. And everyone just went about their day like it was normal and I thought that was really odd um but at the same time it's like I didn't feel any sort of way about it it was almost just like natural because that's just what life is you die at the end of it and it is what it is but it just felt like there needed to be something more there if that makes sense it's interesting that like right off the bat you don't really feel too much um I've never had an experience where I had to deal with uh death of a patient so I don't know how I would react but like I would imagine I would be like very emotional and yeah so he goes on to say something like here you are cutting up a body violating society's most fundamental taboos and at the same time you're craving a burrito so it's like how can you really think about eating when you have a dead person in front of you um like again it's just this idea of how everything becomes so normalized I think maybe it's just by nature the field that we're in where you see so much of it that you become desensitized like you were saying but that shouldn't be right but it's also like how do you fight that yeah I don't know if it's something you fight like it's it's just something that happens I don't think any other field would understand what a doctor goes through um you know, being around life and death so much. Um, like, in a hospital, there's literally people dying every whatever hours and people being born. And that's not a normal human experience, if that makes sense. Like, no normal person is seeing so much of life and death. So it definitely has an impact on the doctor. And because of that, I feel like they're free to react how they need to. He says that he skinned the limb, sliced through the inconvenient muscles, you know, pulled out all the organs. And he says, anatomy lab in the end became becomes less a violation of the sacred and more something that interferes with happy hour. And that realization discomfits. In our uh, rare reflective moments, we are all silently apologizing to our cadavers, not because we sense the transgression, but because we did not. So literally the human being in front of you goes from a human being just to a pile of organs, tissue, and like bones. Yeah, like reducing them just like the nurses kind of did, making everything seem like it was it was a body instead of a person. 
Yeah, but I think that's sometimes what you have to do because you get emotionally invested in each patient. That's going to take a toll on you as a doctor. And, you know, it even even still it takes you can see like it takes such a big toll on doctors and healthcare professionals in this age. Like um, in co- during COVID, nurses, you know, saw so much death that a lot of them quit and a lot of them burnt out so quickly. And I think it's because it just becomes so dehumanizing at one point, at some point. I just think that, I mean, I, I'm sure the respect is still there. And it's almost like, what more can you do except just acknowledge that this was a person, but then you kind of got to go about your job. Um, but it's just like, I wish there was more so a sign of respect but I guess the respect is there it's just how do you express that yeah I guess that's why it's just as an 11th hour volunteer I guess the way that we express that respect is just being with them in that time of um like loneliness because it is lonely you're 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 trans you're you're transitioning into the unknown yourself going through an experience that no one has lived to tell you about um and so I would imagine that you're scared and just don't know what's going on. Um, And, you know, that's why I think my job as a volunteer is actually pretty impactful and meaningful because we're able to provide comfort in such a scary time. And that's, I guess, the sign of respect. And so from here, uh, Dr. Kalanithi chose neurosurgery as his specialty and he uh, finished up medical school got married to his wife, Lucy, and headed to California to start his residency at Stanford. And he says that this is where his real responsibility starts now. Um, And he made some close friends who show up later in this book, such as Victoria and his co-resident, Jeff. Um, So he lost his first patient on a Tuesday, he says. Her name was Mrs. Harvey. And initially she was fine. She was 82 years old and she was just getting a general surgery for a mild bowel obstruction um however this only progressed and uh her blood pressure was collapsing and regardless of what they did mrs harvey was not improving and she didn't stay alive she just you know they kept her from dying but then the next day, she wasn't getting any better. And so Mrs. Harvey had died. Um, Dr. Kalanithi attended her autopsy and checked all the knots that he had tied himself. He's going to start treating his paperwork as patients and not vice versa. Um, because when you see a patient, you know, you can check off a bunch of things that's wrong with them or not wrong with them. Um, but to really see the patient through the paperwork is more important. And he shares that he got to see a lot more depth um, throughout his residency. And some days he felt like he was trapped, um, you know, in an endless jungle. This is how he describes it. In an endless jungle summer, wet with sweat, the rain of tears of families of the dying pouring down. Um, So just like the stark change from medical school to residency um and he even like you know prefaced it with 
it's going to be a shift in responsibility, but now he really feels the responsibility. So, yeah, I guess now he's really feeling um, more so that weight of, hey, this is a person in front of me. I think it's definitely you see family, you realize that this person was important to someone else. um, And now that family's life has been changed forever. Um, And I guess that's that's when I would see it being a lot more being a lot more taxing on the doctor um, because you just see so much death and negativity around you. Like it, it must be hard, you know? Yeah. Um, and even through that all, you have to learn how to adapt um, because otherwise you won't make it through. And so Dr. Carnaby, he like made fellow friends such as his resident friend, Jeff. Uh, and he says he worked with Jeff on these traumas um, and they had this running joke where uh, they would say, is he a Wyoming or California? And so depending on the size of the state is the extent of the injury or um, the severity of the injury. Or I think it's actually like um, depending on the size of the state that tells you like whether the person has enough brain damage where they could rule that or like be a governor or some important figure of that state or not. So like in California, because it's a larger population, that means the patient had more like mental capacity rather than Wyoming. It means that they were in a more critical state because they couldn't um, govern that state if they wanted to, because they were injured. I think that's a clever way to like make light of, something so dark um because imagine if he was just the senator of westwood um you know he really doesn't have too much brain activity going on yeah 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 it definitely was a nice clever way to um to do the job i guess when he talks about the tears of the family and like you know, the description he uses when he's talking about like it being like the water of a jungle. Um, I thought it was interesting also how he's starting to see the impact he has, like, yes, the impact that the death has on the family, but also the impact he has on the family because he's, he plays an intimate role in this patient's life um, towards a very critical time period. Um, And as he's seeing how that affects others, he's also seeing how it affects himself. You're almost like playing God in a sense. To some extent, you have so much control over the patient and their life. And it must be a scary situation or scary like feeling for him. Uh, when he, he's talking about his friend or the other surgeon, Mary, and how she had a thought where, you know, she went into surgery And it was going to be a long nine hour surgery. But the first thing that they do is they check for meds. And if there is meds, metastasis, metastasis, um, then that means they can't operate. So the surgery gets canceled. And she was exhausted um, because, you know, they're in the the hospital for like 36 hours straight, basically. And so she had this thought to herself, please, God, let there be meds. Um, And then there was. And... um, and the surgery was called off and she felt terrible afterwards because she basically had just wished that this guy like was uh, a hopeless case almost. 
because she was tired. And honestly, like as as horrible as that sounds, and I'm glad to see that she even knew how horrible that sounded. Um, I honestly can't blame her because when you're so tired, obviously she didn't mean it, but like she's just so tired. And I just I just want to point that out as like a problem in the healthcare system. You know, I'll call it out. Like you know, we they shouldn't be working that long where they have these thoughts because then you ask why there are so many doctors that aren't compassionate. Well, it's because you work them to the bone and you know, they're only human. They burn out. You got to take care of yourself at a certain point um, so that you can take care of others. And this is just a perfect example of that not happening. That disconnect you can see in the opposite way as well, because um, as a young doctor, you like want the coolest cases or, um, you know, you want the patient to have something crazy so that you can get to observe it. Um, I know working as like an EMT, I sometimes wish like I could get like a cool case so I can get experience doing trauma or, you know, doing a variety of crazy things. And for a second, you forget that you're wishing ill on someone technically. Um, And it's just because you want that experience as a doctor how the patient just starts to become just a person like just a body which is obviously I think everyone will agree that it's not right which is why I'm so big on like how do we reverse this and I think it's just like trying not to work someone to the bone and just like like what are that's why I'm like what are ways that we can remind people that like and not desensitize them because these are people with their own lives and their own families and it's just the horrible things that are occurring to them that no one's paying attention to because we're tired or we're in our own world but that's not right because the whole idea of medicine is to care for someone else but we can't do that when we're so focused on ourselves because we're so tired so it's like this cycle and then it just needs to break somewhere in order for healthcare to improve and i wonder if it is it is even possible to break the cycle though because um even with the doctors being so overworked i feel like healthcare is still not the best that it can be i think it's just this shortage too of physicians and healthcare providers especially now after covid i guess but like because there's not enough it's like there's no choice but to make us work hard but then it's just like it's it's just ultimately it comes down to the patients not getting the quality that they deserve um so I just think there needs to be a solution somewhere and I I just hope somewhere someone who is in charge of this is noticing that there's a problem and like trying to do what they can to fix the shortage and like I know it's difficult to be a doctor and I know that it's it's also disincentivizing to a lot of people because of how much how much how much schooling there is how much money it costs um how much work you have to put in um but and I know, I know that's also all for a good reason, too. Like, you want to make sure your doctor knows what they're doing. So you want to make sure that they're well-educated and go through the training. But it's just, like, something has to give somewhere. And I don't want to be the one to say where it is. Because, I, I, trust me, I understand that there are pro, pros and cons to everything. Um, but something has to give somewhere, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's not something we're doing to change, I think. I hope there is, but I mean, it doesn't seem like there's anything. Be- I mean, obviously, it'd be easier to say like, hey, OK, we can maybe make the schooling a little easier or I think. But then why don't you just I don't know. I don't know where it, it comes um, back to, because it's like. Maybe if you didn't make it so competitive, 
people wouldn't have to work so hard to get into med school, right? And I can only see it from from the stage I'm at right now. But it's like, you know, if you didn't make it so competitive, people, more people could get into med school. So then it's like, why is there not enough staff to teach the incoming class of med students? Like, why is it so? Because uh, there are so many people who want to be, but then it just gets narrowed. But why don't you just broaden the amount of people who can get in, right? I don't know if it's a logistics issue. I don't know if it's because they want the best and the brightest. Um, but at a certain point, it's just like there aren't enough of the best and brightest. I wanted to talk about the neurosurgeon, um, like who he was watching, like with the child with the large brain tumor and how he not only addressed clinical facts of the situation, but the human facts as well, telling the parents to make sure they take care of themselves because this is a long process and they just have to be strong the whole way. Um, and I thought it was interesting that he picked up on these little things as well. Because that's also what makes a good doctor, right? It's being able to also work with families and, and understand that human component of disease and what it does to a family dynamic um, and being able to give guidance in that light. So I thought it was nice that he picked up on that and hopefully, you know, he implemented that into his own care. And so I think it's also talking about how, um, you know, being a doctor or biology or actually being a doctor isn't just scientific but you're also dealing with spiritual problems as he says um and so it's like this mix of humanities and all sorts of skill sets with science um which goes back to his upbringing of like being really into literature but um i just think that that's a great way to sum up what a doctor kind of is like in its entirety he makes this analogy later on just in case we don't get to it, I just wanted to say like he called the role of a doctor akin to a pastor. And I thought that was really interesting because I talked about it in one of my classes this past semester, how we read something similar where they said that um, it's it's the, the role of the doctor is to be that kind of compassionate figure um, dealing with life and death. And so it is very much like a pastor, I would say. Now we start to see Dr. Kawanithi change his mind a little bit about the idea of um, patience and, you know, quality of life versus life, because now he's seeing so much death and, and, you know, especially in neurosurgery, like how if you don't have your mind, you can have your body, but like what quality of life is that? And he's starting to understand that maybe um, letting certain patients go wouldn't be the worst thing because, of the fact that um, what quality would there be if they were to live. So I just thought it was interesting to see his transition. Yeah, I think once you see death so much and the impact it has on the patient and their families, um, just sitting around in a waiting room with someone in a coma or someone who can't talk, it must be really hard. And then it probably gives you a new perspective on um, the importance of the quality of life as well. Um, and so yeah it is like a difference from in the beginning when we mentioned how the attending was telling Dr. Kalanithi at the time you know sometimes you just don't want to save the patient now he's at the point where he doesn't really want to save some of the patients not that he doesn't want to save them but he sees the the reason for not saving them yeah it's kind of like when triaging he's just like well you know what's what life would be more worth it if that makes sense 
um, to, to rush to one patient versus the other um, because he's seeing this kind of quality of life playing a bigger role. At a certain point, I think Dr. Kalanithi gets pretty vulnerable in the sense that he's being really honest about the way he was caring for his patients. And he talks about how, you know, when treating one specific patient, um, you know, who, a, a quote, vet who refused the advice and coaxing of doctors, nurses, and physical therapists for weeks. As a result, his back wound broke down just as we had warned him it would. Um, and so in his head, Dr. Galanithi goes, you know, he had it coming. But then the next line his, in his reflection, he goes, nobody had it coming. Um, and so I think that's interesting that, like, personally, when I sometimes think of doctors um, who seem to have this kind of, like, arrogant mindset, um, it seems like they're always, like, they, they, they paint themselves as being infallible and, you know, just, like, um, more knowledgeable than everyone else. And that somehow makes them better. Um, and so they say things like, you know, he had it coming. But I think it's it's really nice for Dr. Kalinathy to have been honest in the sense that he said that, yes, this was me. But now looking back, no one has it coming, um, just like him in his cancer. You know, he, he can't say he had it coming. Right. So no one asks to get cancer. No one asks to be sick. But these things just happen and no one has it coming. Um, so I don't I think it was a good, good. Um, it was an honest moment. And. It was nice to see that a healthcare provider was aware that they were saying something like this and that it was incorrect to say something like this. And I hope that like every future healthcare provider reading this um, really felt the power of that statement. And, you know, because it is I understand it, it might be easy to kind of get caught up in in feeling like, oh, I know so much better than everyone else. And why couldn't they have just listened to us and they wouldn't be in this position? But everyone's human and we make mistakes. And as healthcare providers, we shouldn't be so judgmental. Right. And I think it's like so easy to tell a patient you should be doing X, Y, Z in order to avoid, you know, an infection or whatever it is. Um, but the patient won't know the extent of what's going to happen to them. And also so many life things come up where like can inhibit them from doing what you tell them to do. So you never really know what's going on in someone else's life. And it's best just to not cast judgment and, and treat every patient equally. This reminds me of when I was in high school and there was this one year that I kept getting sick, like every other week or almost every week I was at my doctor's and I was sick, but we didn't really know what was wrong with me. And the receptionist thought I was just going in to get out of class because every time, you know, I would get a doctor's note. Um, and the one of the last times that I went, she was like, oh, what, you're sick again? Uh, you need another doctor's note? Something like that. And like thinking back to that, that was so weird. Yeah, I agree. I don't think I've ever had, well, I don't have, I never had a doctor be so blatant about it but it's almost like sometimes you can tell when I'm worried about something and I'm coming in to get it checked and although it sounds ridiculous like it's peace of mind more than anything even if you know nothing comes about from it like you know peace of mind is a great thing and I just wish that um like healthcare providers or anyone in that space to be able to provide me that peace of care peace of mind actually does so instead of um, just brushing it off as like a, a silly, silly little thing I'm doing. 
Yeah, and the, I think the only thing we can change about that is how we are as healthcare professionals in the future. I think a lot of doctors are set in their ways, and um, thankfully, Doctor Kalanithi was <clears throat> sorry. Doc, thankfully, Doctor Kalanithi was self-reflective, but not every doctor or physician or you know healthcare provider is like that. So, um, I think the only change we can do starts from ourselves. Yeah, and it's a shame that you know. It was not until Dr. Kalanithi got his cancer and was reflecting where he finally realized this kind of lesson. And, you know, he mentions it in his own care, too, how like sometimes um, like reflecting back on his care. It's like sometimes maybe I had pushed discharge over patient worries, ignored pain when other demands were pressing. Um, You know, and now looking back, he he feels terrible that he did this at some point because then you put yourself in the patient position and you're like, oh man, like, like I, to be treated this way, I don't like it at all. So it sucks that I was treating my patients like this previously. Yeah. And that goes back to our point from before where you really don't know what the patient is going through until you're in their shoes. Um, And most people aren't really put in someone else's shoes. Dr. Kalanithi is a rare example where he had to experience what his patients went through. And even if we can't put ourselves in the patient's shoes, at least we can try. I think trying and the effort you put in to try and understand is just as valuable. Yeah, exactly. When you can't, you know, you can't have that direct exact experience. You really just try to get as much experience as close to that as possible and really try to try to see things from your patient's point of view by maybe even just like asking them like hey let me try to understand more about your situation so I know how to I can better help you and then specifically as Dr. Kalanithi was dealing with death around him he kind of realized that everyone dies obviously but um, what you can do for a patient and their family is change the way that the family is going to remember that death um, or guiding them through that process of death and illness. Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, it's what's going to happen is going to happen. It's just how we handle the situation um, to make it less painful on ourselves when it does happen. And I think, again, kind of going back to my experience volunteering, that's just a lot of what it came down to being there with the patient as they were dying um, and making them feel comfortable and not alone. I think you remember a lot of experiences by the emotion you felt during them. And so when you are guided by a physician and you feel like you're part of the treatment process and you're not just another number on a paper, um, I feel like that gives a patient and their family more comfort and they have a much more positive reaction to everything regardless of the outcome um obviously not everything can go correctly all the time and even with the most uh even with the best care something can go wrong yeah and i actually really like what you just said there about how you want to involve the patients in their care to make them feel like instead of it being this like okay i'm gonna obediently listen to you um, they feel involved in their own life and their own um, trajectory throughout their illness. And I think that no matter the outcome, that still must do a lot to um, improve that kind of experience, I guess, for the patient. And that, that goes back to one quote that I really liked from this book, uh, which is when Dr. Kalanithi said, quote, 
when there's no place for the scalpel, words are the surgeon's only tool. And I, I mean, I think that kind of speaks for him itself based on what we were just saying. Oh, I also like, I mean, there's just a lot of lines I like from him. Like, he also said that, um, you know, as a doctor, he's like, I already mentioned the pastor thing, but also he's not acting as death's enemy, but as its ambassador. Because again, you can't fight death, but you can make it easier to process. Um, and I just think that's an interesting perspective on the doctor's role. Yeah, I I didn't pick that up while I was reading it, but I like that he says, you know, he's an ambassador because death is inevitable and, you know, you can't really be, I mean, you can be scared of it, but it's going to happen uh, sooner or later. And so approaching death, like, with guidance from a doctor is, I think, the best way to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because, you know, like he said, when there's nothing you can do anymore, like, like, scientifically, that human element of compassion and love is still there and still something that you can utilize. And this is a little off topic, but a few books ago, or like a few seasons ago, we talked about what if robots replace doctors? And I think this is one of the reasons why robots can't replace because that element of compassion is gone. And, you know, in my last moment, I wouldn't want a robot being like, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I would want a doctor there. So, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, Like when you want someone to hold your hand, you don't want it to be cold metal. (laughs) You want it to be warm blood. Yeah. So next, Dr. Kalanithi talks about Mrs. Lee, uh, a patient in her late 50s, and she had come in because uh, she had thought she was having a stroke because she was having tingling in her hand, and an MRI was ordered and obtained, and so Dr. Kalanithi asked her, um, did anybody tell you what the MRI showed? And the patient says, no, no one has told her and so Dr. Kalanithi says all like in his head he's like oh no one's like no one wants to give her the difficult news so he has to be the one to do it um and instead of outright saying you have cancer or being very like objective about it he shows his humane side because he says we have a lot to talk about um can you tell me what you think is happening here and so the patient says I think I might be having a stroke. Am I not? And Dr. Kalanithi is like very gentle in that he says, you're not having a stroke. And he like carefully explains the MRI to her. And he can see the change in the patient as um, like the patient slowly realizes it might be cancer. And he doesn't definitively say it's cancer. He instead is saying we can't be sure about what it is until after the surgery. And as he's saying this, he's pretty certain it is cancer. Um, He says, based on the scan, this is a quote from the book, based on the scan, there is no doubt in my mind that this was glioblastoma, an aggressive brain cancer, the worst kind. Yet I proceeded softly taking my cues from Mrs. Lee and her husband. So what we were just talking about, the humane side of medicine, he's showing that because he knows that just hitting them with the you have brain cancer is the worst kind is not going to be good for the patient um the patient or the patient's like recovery or anything 
Um, and I really like that. Yeah, and I mean, he goes on to say that, um, like, he just, he gave them this news, kind of um, priming their brain, I guess, to this idea that, you know, you should start thinking cancer, start kind of preparing yourselves. Um, but he didn't, he, he says he goes by spoonful, like he didn't want to give them too much. And this actually made me think of something I learned in my intro to clinical medicine class this past semester, where, you know, we talked about the ways to break bad news to a patient. And we talked about how you want to be honest, right? You never want to lie to them. You never want to sugarcoat anything. But at the same time, you don't want to give them too much information because, in, at that moment, they're thinking like, oh, my God, what's what did he just say? Or what did he, he or she just say? Um, you know, what my life is about to change. Like, you just have so many thoughts, understandably, running through your mind. So when you start go to, getting into treatment options or, you know, here's the next steps, like, they're not really processing that because they're trying to process this um, life-altering news. So I thought it was really great. Maybe, you know, he had learned this in formal education, but you know, it was nice of him to actually practice that and show that, okay, there's no way this patient's going to understand me right now. We're going to go slowly. We're going to take cues from her and her husband. We're going to work at their pace so that they are super well informed about this process that's going to change their lives. Yeah. And I think that's like the best way to go about it. I've heard stories about people who had doctors who just you know bluntly tell them you have cancer or you have a terminal illness and uh, the way the patient reacts is like so I mean I haven't been in their shoes but like it seems like they're just so shattered by it and I think slowly processing the information like by spoonfuls like you just said is like the most ideal way to handle something so life-changing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That way you're not feeling too overwhelmed and you can take it day by day. So I really like the part where he is explaining in detail to them what's going to happen in the next couple of days. But as he's explaining it, he's like, I, and to himself, he's like, I most likely will have to explain it, re-explain it because they're probably not taking this information in. And so he knows that it's a lot to take in and it's a lot to retain. Um and so he's willing to be patient and willing to adjust to the patient and not like rush the process of letting the patient accept their diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's just a sign that he's really aware and really receptive as a physician. Um, and then also he talks about how there are like three th- or I guess two things that he kind of picked up on and one was just not to go into statistics um because you know as he says it's for research not for hospital rooms um a statistic yeah it's going to give you a good good estimate i guess of like you know what you should see down the road but you're not leaving much room for hope it's it's very cold and inhumane like we were kind of saying and so um it's important to be accurate but you want to leave that room for hope like he says um so instead of saying median survival is 11 months, he'd say most patients live many months to a couple of years. And he's saying that this was a, a much more honest description. Um, and he uses this, these words like um, it's it's better to be accurate than it is to be precise. Um, and so I guess that means like, you know, don't fit people in a box 
just be honest while generally speaking. And, you know, it's important to give them that hope. Yeah, I think uh, giving someone a clear due date, I guess, for death is just not practical because so many things can change. Um, So giving someone a range is much more of an honest description, like he says. Yeah, it's like you don't need to be smart, but you need to be relatable, understanding and show some humility. Yeah. And like when receiving a diagnosis such as that, what you need is a friend, not a doctor. I mean, you do need a doctor, don't get me wrong, but you need someone to lean on who you can be your most vulnerable self with um, while still getting medical advice, like an ambassador for death. And so next, uh, Dr. Kalanithi talks about his friend Jeff, who he ran into in general surgery, which he says is also an intense and demanding profession. Uh, similar to neurosurgery and so they were both having an off day like they both you know didn't look too great um and so Jeff asked um Jeff or one of them asked how's your day going and so Jeff says you go first and Dr. Kalanithi says he just had a patient um who was shot in the head for wearing the wrong color shoes and the patient died um and also about a bunch of inoperable brain tumors and, you know, just so much death. And uh, so then Jeff laughs and instead of saying his story, he says, if I'm ever feeling down, I could always just talk to a neurosurgeon because they're always having a worse day. And it's like, just by looking at a doctor, you wouldn't be able to tell what type of, what they've been through or what type of day they're having because, you know, they're surrounded by so much death. I think we mentioned it earlier. And um, you just don't know because they have to, you know, put on a happy face. They're not even happy, but just um, they have to just move on with their life because it's a reoccurring thing. It's not something they can sit and grieve about. Um, Unfortunately, in that moment, that patient just becomes another death or another tally, another record chart they have to do. Um, And that's just the reality of medicine. And it definitely has an impact on people as we'll see later in the story. Yeah, and I mean, I think this actually reminded me of something we skipped over a little earlier. We might have talked about it with Gawande, I think. But, you know, how it's crazy one minute he can be helping this patient. Um, The next minute he can be at her autopsy checking, you know, the knots he tied in uh, the woman's abdomen and, like, stomach. or, Or, like, you know, something along the GI tract. But you know it's crazy like like how does that it definitely must take a toll on you um unless it's just kind of just you get uh used to it where you just like learn to accept that this is a part of reality but i think the the whole message of this book is you never truly get used to it because it's always weighing on you in the back of your mind and especially when it's happening to you it's even worse where you just see how how terrible death is and yeah, there's really no other way to describe it. It's, and, and it's also hard for me to describe because I've never been in that position where I've faced death so intimately, um, except when I'm, I'm doing my volunteer work. And it, it's just, it's such a, it's like indescribable as much as I wish I could describe it, you know? Yeah, I agree. I've never been in the position where I had to deal with death so closely other than relatives. But even that, you know, you just, it's not the same. Um, 
And I don't know if it's something you get used to. I would hope not because that's just so bleak. And I feel like it takes away the humane aspect of doctors. But I also think um, it's important to talk about because that's why so many, there's so much like suicide and mental health issues in the healthcare department. And um, people work so hard to get to the point of being a doctor, being in the healthcare field, that they often forget that, you know, you are your number one patient. You have to take care of yourself first and before you can treat other people. It's like, when you're on an airplane, you got to, you know, treat yourself first, give yourself the oxygen before you can help other people. Because if you're not at your best, then your patients are not going to receive the best care that they can. Yeah. And I've no, I've, I know personally, I've had people tell me this, like, well, just one person. Um, I don't think, I think people, other people think it, they just don't tell me, but it's like the irony of, you know, one day maybe I'll skip a meal because I'm I'm studying too hard. But it's like you want to be a doctor, you want to help people, and yet you don't take your own advice and you're skipping meals and you know you're not exercising and stuff like that. So it's just a, it's a remi- it's true. It's honest, right? It's 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 the truth. Like I should be able to take care of myself if I want to take care of others. Um, and you know, thinking long term, obviously, like you just mentioned, we want to avoid um, you know decreasing mental health quality you know where we want to avoid that from happening prevents that from happening I wish I could speak um and yeah so it's just like you know it's very important to take care of yourself and in in such a field where you're surrounded by darkness a lot of the time yeah exactly so then during Dr. Kalanithi's fifth year of residency he actually started working in a research lab Um, and I guess like the, the interesting part of this experience for me is, um, the, the main, I forget his role, but like the doctor doing research there, uh, he gets cancer and then he's telling Dr. Kalanithi about his diagnosis and he's just being really honest and vulnerable. And, you know, he says, um, Hey Paul, like, do you think my life has meaning? Did I make the right choices? Um, and it's just that one of those moments of like, like, I mean, at least what I took away from that is it's interesting to see that this is what the thought is when you face death. It always comes back to, did my life have meaning or purpose or did I make a positive contribution to this world? Um and like, I guess it, it comes back to what Dr. Kalanithi was interested in studying all along, which is what's the meaning of life. Um, and so I have a question to pose. Um, what would you say? <laughs> Very profound. And, you know, we might cut this out. But what do you think is the meaning of life? I think it's all about learning from your mistakes and growing from it. Um I think we all strive for perfection or, you know, strive to be happy. But I was just hearing something like being happy is just like another fleeting emotion, you know, like, I don't know. I think what I want out of life is being content and being at peace and knowing that I did the best that I could, knowing that like, um, I didn't waste, can you hear that? knowing that I didn't waste the opportunities that was given to me and knowing that like I'm surrounded by people who I care about and who care about me 
and you know I'm not like searching for something superficial um I feel like that's being lost nowadays um people are like often looking to impress other people or caring too much about what people think and you know that's all fine and everything but I think when you chase after that validation external validation from other people and you're not looking to make yourself happy you just kind of lose the meaning of life um yeah like um I've just been feeling a lot happier recently because I've been doing work like I do volunteer EMT and it's like very rewarding like I come home and even if I'm tired I feel like I did something good that day and it's like that's what I want out of life to feel like I did something good and I did it out of the goodness of my heart instead of for ulterior motives and even though I'm like I joined EMT with the intent of getting hours for college or whatever I feel like it's something I'll do lifelong because it's just proven to be so good like rewarding um yeah what do you think yeah I I agree with you in the sense that like I mean I was really relating to what you were saying about being busy right now but it feeling good and not not feeling exhausted um which I think first off I want to say we're fortunate to be able to feel because so many people you know you have to make money they go to job they go to work doing something they hate but they continue to do it because they have to put food on the table um but I think we're fortunate that we are doing something we love and that makes us feel fulfilled so like me doing this volunteer work or, or going to doctor's office and, and doing work for them, um, I just like love the experience and everything I'm learning. And me, something I've kind of, kind of come to know about myself, I guess, more recently is that I just love talking to different people and getting their perspective on life and just like things in general, like especially if we share common interests, but like just just like, I don't know, just like, like I said, just talking to people and and getting to know them is really fun for me. Um, and now that I have the time to kind of do that, I've really been enjoying that too. Um, and it's, you know, it definitely brings us, brings that kind of happiness. Um, uh, especially when the person I'm talking to, I also get to help, you know, makes it help them out, like in work, make their workload a little lighter. Um, but in terms of meaning of life, um, I think that, I want to just leave this earth knowing that I, I, I left it better than when I came in or I did something to try to make it better than when I entered. Right. So like, I mean, the most obvious way to do that for me is by being a doctor, right. I want to give people the, like when they come to visit the doctor, I want to make them feel like they were treated not only for like the, the, um, like objectively like the science I, I gave them treatment and hopefully I made them feel better um, and cured them of whatever but like also that emotional thing we were just talking about making them feel like they were also being cared for during that process and again just talking to them making making life feel a little less terrible than it sometimes may feel um, just being there for them for whatever illness or just life being someone they could like like just have a casual conversation with and maybe brighten up their day. Um, but like, you know, things like that and just, just making it more positive than when I left. So I can look back and say, Hey, I really did something to add meaning to this world and make it better. 
think we should all strive to make a difference in some way. Even if it's not a huge difference, you know, you could just make a difference in one person's life and that's enough because one person got affected by it and it changed their world. Um, even if it's not changing the world, it changed their world. So, Yeah, and it's like that, that small change or like little things still have a big impact. Exactly. So, Dr. Kalanitsi then kind of touches specifically on neurosurgery a bit, where he's talking about how, how important the brain is for a good quality of life. And specifically, he talks about, you know, Wernicke's and Bracca's areas, uh, two areas of the brain that are really important for understanding language and producing it. And, um, you know, he kind of just asked this question of, what kind of life exists without language? Because in his mind, the not having language um, uh, very significantly decreases the quality of life. Um, maybe even is the, the biggest thing to decrease the quality of life. So I wanted to pose another question and ask if you think that this is probably the worst thing, like if one of these areas was damaged, or do you think that some other region of the brain might result in an even worse quality of life if it was damaged? I think communication is definitely a big part of life. And I think not being able to communicate definitely would take away from it, like life in general. I mean, I wouldn't want to be misunderstood um, or like I feel like I would feel extreme frustration if if I wasn't able to express myself or I couldn't put words together, even though it was in my head. Um, I don't know if we already went over this, but there was a patient who could only speak in numbers Um to Dr. Kalanithi and that was just like so strange um but it, it it is like definitely a real thing and so I think losing that ability would definitely alter my life um and about it being the worst I'm not sure because you know everyone is different um but me personally yeah I think not being able to communicate would be terrible so damage to those areas would be the worst for me so yeah as I kind of asked the question um I realized it was not the best kind of question to ask because it's just hard to kind of it's really hard to answer um and I agree like I think not being able to communicate with others which is such a big part of the human experience having these connections with other humans um you know if we weren't able to do that properly it would definitely be a challenge for us um but then I thought about, you know, other things like sight or or hearing. And that also must be really hard because imagine not being able to experience the world fully. And um, and yeah, like, you know, it's just like things that we take for granted, not being able to um, do those things. So I think that like the main takeaway from this is just the like like Dr. Kalanithi's point was the brain is just super important for our quality of life. Um, and again, just like not to take it for granted because, because of how important it is in determining, um, I keep saying quality of life, but yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. So we mentioned earlier about, um, the friends that Dr. Kalanithi made during his residency, Victoria and Jeff. And so one day while Dr. Kalanithi had reached like the end or the pinnacle of his residency, as he says it. He was at a conference in San Diego and his phone rang and his uh, friend, Victoria, co-resident friend, 
um, called and said, something's wrong, Jeff killed himself. And while I was reading this, I was just like, oh my god, this is just so drastic, right? So basically what happened is he had a difficult complication with one of his surgeries and his patient died. Um, and then so Jeff climbed to the top of the roof of a building and jumped off. So then Dr. Kalanithi like wishes that he could be there for Jeff um, before this happened, that he could have been there to counsel him, um, been there to listen to him. Um, and this just shows the toll that medicine and the death of a patient and all the responsibility uh, has on the physician or the surgeon's life um and the surgeon's like mental health i feel like it's not talked about enough the amount of doctors who are just not doing well um because of what they experience on the daily um before we briefly talked about how dr jeff and dr conity you know met up and they were talking about their days and how one was having the worst day and then not one was having a worse day than the other um but really, you don't know what's going on in someone's life. And so it's so important to just be there for someone when they're going through it and lend a listening ear, even if you're not in medicine, just in general, if you see someone who's not doing okay, it's always good to reach out and listen to them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Dr. Kalanithi ends the chapter or this part with this really interesting quote, um, he says, you can't ever reach perfection, but you can believe in an asymptote toward which you are ceaselessly striving. So it took me a minute to think about what this w- was saying, because it was pretty profound. Um, but I think he's trying to say that to keep going and striving for perfection, or like you should keep going and striving for perfection, even though it is and it feels unattainable sometimes. Yeah, I think like perfection, it's not something that can really be reached and it can mean different things for different people. But the important thing, like we said before, is to just try, like try to understand your patients, try to be there for someone, um, try to do your best. And as long as you're giving it your best effort, you are headed toward perfection. Yeah, and especially if you have the best of intentions while doing such and like like trying to be perfect, right? You're doing it for your patients. Um, even though it's impossible as humans to be perfect, um, we can try to do our best. All right, guys. Well, this has been an episode of Elsa and Ria's Emergency Room Podcast. Um, stick around for the rest of the season where we'll be talking about part two of this book when breath becomes air Um, and we have some other books planned so stay tuned bye